0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: For Reformed Christians, there has never been any question whether Christ is Lord over all things. When Abraham Kuyper declared that there is not one square inch over which Christ has not said, Mine, he was repeating what we have always believed. We have not always, however, agreed about what the implications are of that conviction. Kuyper himself came to reject parts of the original text of Belgic Confession, Article 36, which called for the magistrate to enforce religious orthodoxy and to punish heretics. His forceful arguments against that aspect of 16th and 17th century Reformed teaching caused both Dutch and American Reformed churches to revise Belgic Confession, Article 36. In our time, Christians face serious challenges about how to express the lordship of Christ over all things. Calvin spoke of a twofold kingdom, that is, a single kingdom with two distinct spheres, the sacred and the secular. Our guest today is then a minister, as it were, in the secular sphere of God's kingdom. He is what Calvin called a lesser magistrate, whose job it is to act as a check and balance upon other co-equal branches of the American federal government, the executive and the judiciary. Senator Ben Sass is the junior United States senator from the great state of Nebraska. Since his inauguration in 2014, Senator Sass has become a leading advocate for the renewal of the prerogatives of the Senate for civil liberties, including religious liberty. A fifth-generation Nebraskan, he grew up in Fremont, Nebraska. He's a diehard Husker fan, but he's also a scholar with a Ph.D. from Yale in American history. He's been a college prof, a business consultant, a college president. He has run a Christian nonprofit. He's been chief of staff in the Department of Justice, congressional aide, and assistant secretary in Health and Human Services. Senator Sass has outspoken about his Christian faith, and he's here to speak to the graduating class of 2016. And he joins us now for Office Hours. Hello, Senator, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you for having me,
2: and Professor, Doctor, Minister, (laughs) Scott, (laughs) and I'm Ben.
1: I've known Ben for a long time when he was a graduate student, but now he holds an esteemed office, and we're very excited to have you here. I know the faculty was excited, and uh, President Godfrey was beside himself. I didn't know he could jump that high. So he got four inches up? (laughs) Yeah, that's something for Bob. So you are a Nebraska boy who, as we say back home, walked beans and detasseled corn, and now you are a United United States Senator. One of the first questions that occurred to me when I was thinking about doing this interview was How has becoming a member of the Senate changed your sense of self and of Washington? For example, what's it like to be discussed as a potential presidential candidate? That's not something that very many people ever experience. Well, uh, to the first, has it done anything to change sense of self? I
2: sure hope not. Uh, I believe in grace, gratitude, and uh, we all have callings to live out a life of gratitude to God by trying to love our neighbor. And I've worked in a lot of sectors that have been disrupted and bumpy over the last 24 years and this is another sector that's disrupted and bumpy, but no, it doesn't change any of my sense of self. To your second question, it's a pretty good sign that we don't have a lot of healthy leadership in the country, right? If people talk about you in a job that you think that lots of other people should be
1: well-suited for at the moment, it's a pretty good sign that there aren't a lot of great candidates out there. You talked this morning to the graduates about ranking identities. And I thought that was very helpful. Walk us through that a little bit, because I think the listener would benefit from hearing how you think about ranking your various identities as dad, as senator, as a businessman, all the different hats and identities that you wear. Yeah, I think we all believe in vocation as Christians.
2: We have many different callings from God about how to serve. We all serve as church men and women. I'm an American, and I'm a Nebraskan, and as you mentioned, I'm a Husker football fan. I'm a father. Go Big Red. Uh, go Big Red. I could do the full-on chant version that makes you respond with call and response, like we're doing uh, antebellum church services. I am a Republican, I'm a conservative, currently a U.S. Senator. We all have lots of different callings on earth, but I think it's very important for us to neither forget that we have plural callings nor to get them misordered in the ranking. If I somehow thought that my Husker football loyalties trumped my responsibilities as a husband or a father, I will need to quickly fall under church discipline, as well as just having my common grace friends come over and slap me upside the head, because being a dad and a husband are far more important than Husker football. In the same way, there have been different times in U.S. history where, you know, in 1830, a Pennsylvanian may have thought his or her Pennsylvania identity preceded their American identity. After the Civil War, most all of us believe that our American identity trumps our state citizenship. But you got to keep those things right. And I think we live at a moment where it's very dangerous for Christians. Let's just admit, Christians have always been tempted to be forgetful of the work that God has done and the things to which He's called us. But it's very dangerous to yearn for a city that has foundations in political entities, when we should be yearning for the church eternal and our coming Redeemer King.
1: One of the ways you've prioritized your identities is to commute regularly between Nebraska and D.C. How has that gone?
2: It's bumpy, but it's less bad than the alternative. Melissa and I are blessed to have three kids, 14-year-old girl, 12-year-old girl, 5-year-old son. And I commute, and I live in the town I grew up in, a farm town about an hour outside of Omaha, and I commute basically every week. I'm in Nebraska on the weekends, and I'm in D.C. for Senate voting schedule, which usually begins Monday nights at 5 o'clock, and it goes through Thursday or Friday. And so I want to be in Nebraska, and I want my family to grow up in Nebraska, but I don't want to be away from my kids all week, every week, so we actually rotate which kid travels with dad most weeks. So we're homeschooling parents, and I take usually whichever kid mom is most sick of this week uh, gets the, (laughs) the, the, the card of traveling with dad to DC.
1: That provides some perverse incentives, I I would think. (laughs) So you've given a series of thoughtful and well-regarded addresses on the floor of the Senate about the role of the Senate. It's hard to tell from the outside, and you know, because you're inside that body. How have those addresses been received by your colleagues?
2: very well to the degree that people pay attention to them. I mean, I guess we should just step back and recognize that the American founding was this big, bold claim about human dignity. And to quote Madison, we wouldn't need government if all men were angels, and we wouldn't need checks and balances if all governors were angels. And so the American system is very skeptical of the consolidation of power. So we have a system of limited government that then divides the power among these three separate but equal branches. But we number them, Article One, Article Two, Article Three, legislative, executive judicial branch because of how democratic they are. The legislature stands regularly for re-election every two years in the House. Um, the president only has one referendum on him or her. They run for a second term. The judiciary has lifetime appointments. Those branches are supposed to check and balance one another. And the legislature should be the body where the great long-term policy challenges of the country are wrestled with. And right now it's not happening anywhere. There's not deliberation about the magnitude of the policy challenges we face. And that's a real shame because the Senate is a glorious, jewel in the constitutional system. And with six-year terms and only 100 people that can know each other well, it should be a place for vigorous debate about the direction of the country. And so I've been calling the Senate to recover that great deliberative tradition. And I've received very positive feedback from my colleagues. That doesn't mean that it's changed much behavior right now. We tend to bicker about really small things and ignore the big things.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: You have a visible presence on social media. I don't know this for a fact, but you might be the most visible on social media of any member of the House or the Senate, surely the Senate. How do you think about it? When you think about using social media and communicating that way, how do you think about it and what are you trying to do with it?
2: Thanks for the question. I think two things. First of all, I think what's happening in media and journalism is just interesting as a business strategy problem. And then there's a second question, which centers on how do I want to use it to make sure I'm being fully transparent and engaging with the people that I'm called to represent in Washington. We have this idea that a fractured, fragmented media is a completely new thing. The reality is throughout most of history, there wasn't much media, that journalism that reached far across time and space. And to the degree that we had a lot of it post Gutenberg, it was often newspapers that were very fractionalized in fragmented. The kind of myth of one national conversation of homeroom every night at 6 p.m. with only three different anchors telling us the one view of what's happening as the dominant set of issues in the national discussion, that's something that only really existed from the end of World War II until about the mid-1980s. It was less than 40 years long. And what's happening now, it started with the talk radio kind of breaking down the monopoly of three broadcast networks, but ultimately now with a real IT revolution that has created this opportunity of one-to-one one-to-many, many-to-one, and many-to-many many peripheral conversations means that we have a real fragmentation of national discussion. I think there are both good and bad things about it. I'm kind of a, as you know, Scott, I'm a Neil Postman nerd, and I think that some of the changes in our discourse lead toward more entertainment in ways that are very problematic, but I also think we should admit there wasn't any God's-eye perspective that one journalist was ever offering in the past, so I don't think there's anything that's going to change this moment, though the fact that we're moving toward more fragmentation, more narrow categories. Past conversations, more identification with communities of discourse that are often just reaffirming things that people already believed. There's both good and bad about that. If you have the calling that I have for these six years, I don't think there's much choice that you need to use the tools that exist to try to engage people. And one of the benefits, and then I'll, I'll pull up here, but one of the benefits of this is that I get to engage the people of Nebraska and the people that follow me on social media as a more wholly orbed person than a politician of 30 years ago that the only way they could maybe engage people was press releases that they hope broadcast networks would pick up. One of the big problems we have in American life, and especially American politics right now, is that most of the people who serve in politics tend to be addicted to politics, and they think politics are a first-order thing. I don't believe that, and I think most Americans don't. Politics exists in governments. Uh, governance exists to provide a framework for ordered liberty to preserve a system where people are free from lots of bad things that can happen in a world where people with broken souls, like all of of us after the fall where folks want to take your life and your liberty and your stuff. People should be protected from that to then go out and pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful and actually build community. And so we need more people in politics that are less addicted to politics as the first order thing. Social media allows me an opportunity to talk to Nebraskans as a dad and as a Husker fan and as a nerdy guy who's, you know, reading about economic strategy and business disruptions, um, not just the legislation of the day. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to try to make use of social media.
1: You were featured in the New York Times this morning, and one of the observations that the article made was that you are able to quote Scripture from memory, and you do it very comfortably. You're very open about your Christian faith. Here you are speaking at a commencement for a seminary at which you have served both as a leader internally and on the board of directors. How does your Christian faith inform your work as a senator and as a dad and in other ways?
2: Yes, yeah, so maybe let's go at it from being a Christian serving in politics. And then let's also look at it from the history of the American polity and its regard for cultural pluralism and religious liberty. So, the first is government is more than a necessary evil because there are some questions about positive and negative externalities. We've got to decide which side of the road to drive on, and we have to decide how you capture the benefits for society as a whole to make enough educational and human capital investments. But fundamentally, the first way to think about government is it exists because the world is broken and we need to protect people especially the vulnerable, from the bad things that could happen to them in a post-fall world east of Eden where power is often the thing that dominates. And so government is one domain by which you can live out gratitude to God and try to serve your neighbor and maintain that ordered liberty. So I serve as a Christian in politics, but not precisely pursuing any kind of Christian politics. It is akin to being a Christian who's a really good plumber. And you and I could recount the story of the cobbler who came to Luther and said, now I get the doctrine of justification by faith. What do I do? And he thought the answer was going to be, well, of course you don't make shoes anymore. And Luther said, make great shoes to the glory of God." to benefit your neighbor. And so I hope that I exercise prudence on behalf of the people of Nebraska to the good of the whole country in the political sphere. But I also believe it's very important to admit that the American tradition, American exceptionalism, is a glorious inheritance because our founders believed that anybody who thought that federal political power was the first thing. Anybody who believes America first out of all the identities that people might have, anybody who believes America first probably isn't a very good American because America is a government and governments are about power and about compulsion. And we believe in a Tocquevillian American tradition that the really great stuff in life happens by will and heart and passion and love and voluntarism and persuasion. And so the great things, the center of life, I like to think of it, is in your congregations and in your families, family, and it's your little league, and it's your volunteer fire department, and in your small business. And Washington exists to serve those things, not to displace those things. And so I am involved as a Christian in public life as a way to serve my neighbor, but I also want to be very clear in public life that I'm a Christian first, because I believe that it's important in the American tradition of cultural pluralism for all communities, all faith communities and cultural communities, to be able to be protected for free speech, free assembly, uh, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of communication, right of redress of grievances against the central government, because the meaning of America is about those local communities. It is like country music lyrics. America is not centrally about regulations coming out of the EPA.
1: I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People
0: are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.EDU. 888-480-480-480. 8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Do
1: you think that Tocquevillean vision can be recovered, or is it lost?
2: That is a great question. I believe that it can be recovered, but I think that the slog is going to be long and the hill is steep. Um, <laughs> uh, it, just to remind your listeners, Tocqueville comes to America in the 1830s and early 1840s. So we have the Declaration of Independence in 1776, and you have the Philadelphia Convention in 1787, 88. To the Europeans, America doesn't really fully win its revolution until the War of 1812. And yet we were thought of—we Americans living on the edge of the earth—were thought of as a a bunch of religious zealots, and okay, fine and good in the eyes of the Europeans. Go be nuts and worship according to the dictates of your conscience, but we're never going to have to deal with you on the global stage militarily or economically. And by the 1830s, America is arguably the most economically dynamic place on earth. There's a market revolution and a transportation revolution and a canal revolution. There's a sort of proto-sense of what the railroads are going to look like. And America is really dynamic, and the Europeans want to try to understand why this is. And so Alexis de Tocqueville, if people read Democracy in America, it's 1500, Pages as long as a book. That's not the right way to think about it. Bust the binding off it and break it into five to seven page chunks and view it as a bunch of magazine articles because he's a travel writer trying to make sense of American economic dynamism to these Europeans. And he said, What's crazy about these people is Americans don't believe that the world is divided between statist compulsion and isolated individualism. They have this huge middle domain, this big space for community that's done by persuasion. You actually have to build a good enough product that someone wants to buy it, not that they're compelled because you have a monopoly, because you have the right political. Political connections. And so America is fascinating by the 1830s and 40s, and cultural pluralism and decentralization and localism led to dynamism. And we need that again, but there is a crisis of confidence in decentralization right now. People are scared, and this is a disoriented time. And Washington lies regularly and says, if only the experts had more power, we could centrally plan utopia. It's, of course, absurd, but it's the drift of the modern narrative. Give more power to Washington. It will fix your problems. It's more likely to create dystopia than utopia.
1: As you've been saying here, and as you said this morning to the students, we are experiencing an unsettled and unsettling cultural moment. The court has redefined marriage. The White House is now acting as a sort of super school board across the entire country. It tow the line on same-sex bathrooms or we will pull your funding. How should Americans think about these challenges, and how do you do it? For example, you know, you've invoked God, you've invoked natural law. How do we invoke those, or how do we think about those categories and apply them to issues like this?
2: So two thoughts. The first thing, and what we talked about a little bit at commencement this morning, is Christians, though we are disoriented by the pace of societal and cultural change right now, Christians should realize that we have always been living in exile, and our hope is in the kingdom that is to come. And so, uh, first of all, our identity is not centrally in America. And it turns out there's often the the old aphorism: "You don't want to be so heavenly minded to be of no earthly good." There's also the sort of counterpoint, which is to be so earthly obsessed is actually to be heavenly dishonorable, but also of no earthly good. So it turns out when Luther says, uh, "You know, how was the Reformation coming?" Philip and I were just in the garden drinking beer and God did it, that's about the ministry. But in the same way, loving your neighbor requires a certain amount of emotional stability that you believe in things that are to come, not that my labors and culture will fix everything next Tuesday. Because if you think that, you will despair and not be able to serve your neighbor well. Then I would say secondarily, as an American thinking about this moment and this challenge, it is very important for Christians to have some reflective self-criticism about the degree to which Christians in the past have been skeptical of the classical liberal tradition and have yearned for hegemony. Christians have regularly wanted to make America a place that we would have unique power over. I think Christians are coming to see that that pathway of Constantine hoping for power over our neighbors was not only foolish as a long-term strategy, it's not very winsome to anybody either. And so I want to be, in the words of Arthur Brooks, the guy who runs the American Enterprise Institute think tank, and I think just a wonderfully winsome guy, Arthur There's a Catholic guy talking about how to live in this moment. He believes it's fundamental that we learn not to talk against programs, but instead to talk for people. And a lot of the pace of cultural change is hurting kids. One of the main things that's happening is we're accelerating the process of family breakdown. And there isn't any data anywhere. Just at a common grace level, looking at the evidence, you know, even quantitative evidence, as opposed to those of us who would come at it from a theological tradition or an Aristotelian philosophical tradition, there is just no social science evidence that any of this breakdown down of the family is anything but horrible for kids. And so we need to get better at building alliances with other neighbors who are concerned about those who are being victimized by the pace of this change.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: Is religious liberty in jeopardy? It looks like it, but it's hard to tell. I think it is. Again, not to
2: talk about any of the issues about the gendering of bathrooms or whatnot. It is breathtaking that in the last 18 months, we've gone from certain gendered pronouns that didn't exist. Z is one that's used in some places now. And that's um,
1: remarkable, isn't it? I mean, we're, from a reform point of view, it's like we're being forced by unelected agencies to speak in tongues, right? We're using as you said, pronouns, Z, and I don't remember what the other one was, and either use those in New York or face a $60,000 fine.
2: Yeah, and what's really bizarre about that is I am perplexed at just the level of cultural analysis that there aren't any liberals anymore. Where are the liberals rushing in to speak against speech codes? because we who love Jay Gresham Machin, remember his ACLU history. And all Christians should be calling on liberals, historic philosophical liberals, classical liberals, to be true to their own commitments. There should be an American rudimentary 1945 ACLU consensus that folks either continue to fight for or acknowledge why. They, many on the cultural left, have decided to embrace a power-seeking that is indifferent to minority communities. And it may well be that those of us who believe in a traditional understanding of nature and of marriage are going to rapidly become a minority community. I hope that many liberals will again rise up to defend minorities. I think we have an obligation to do this in a way, though, that isn't power-seeking, but that is alliance-building about the constitutional system. I want to see a constitutional recovery, and the First Amendment isn't just about religious liberty, it's about that wonderful nesting on the interrelationship of freedom of speech, assembly, religion, and press there are five freedoms in the First Amendment, and they're all so intimately related, you couldn't list one before the other because they come as a web and a nest. And so we need to be the defenders of robust discourse, actual debate, freedom of speech. We need to be concerned about what's happening with the decline of any sense of truth and objective fact in the press. We should be defenders of those who are losing in this space.
1: So am I hearing you say that you're not sure the legislative branch can do anything to stem this, or is this something that needs to be addressed from the bottom up, you know, via networks and friendships and persuasion?
2: I think both. I think that, first of all, the oath of office that I've taken as a legislator is not first to pass a lot more legislation. There are times where we need new legislation. There's times where we need to repeal extant bad legislation. But the oath that I've actually taken is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, which is the same oath that President Obama and Vice President Biden had to take. It's the same oath that our Supreme Court and our lower Article Three federal court justices and judges take. And defending the Constitution requires us not only to not act unilaterally in exceeding authorities that we've been given, but it requires us to be involved in the work of cultural catechesis about what America means, and that is certainly the duty of local teachers and of parents and of community builders everywhere.
1: Is there any movement within the Senate or the House to introduce legislation? Are you in discussions at all about this?
2: Well... The problem we face is that it's been swallowed inside partisanship right now. So two years ago, President Obama actually had his famous comment that he didn't care very much if the legislature passes the laws he wants them to pass because he's got a pen and he's got a phone and he can just make it up unilaterally. No, actually you can't because that's a violation of an oath you took to executive restraint where the executive's job is to faithfully, to dutifully execute the laws that are passed by the Congress, especially in the domestic policy space. In foreign policy, the president as commander in chief has a little more of a policy initiating role but that has led to a moment where we've swallowed up what should be a distinction between the branches inside a tribal what color jersey are you wearing do you have an R or a D for Republican or Democrat on your back and so it's why even though I'm the fourth most conservative guy in the US Senate by voting record I have made a point in my primary election night victory speech in my general election speech in my first maiden speech on the floor of the Senate I've repeatedly said my oath and my duty to the Constitution is prior to any partisan loyalties. So I believe in Republican policy solutions. I think, for instance, on the minimum wage, if you raise it to $15, I think it will harm more people than it will help. But the distinction between my and a Democrat's position on the minimum wage is vastly less important than what should be our shared commitment to a constitutional system where the separation of powers is fundamental. And so I've pledged that I will always oppose a Republican president who tries to exceed his or her authority as well. I mean, I think that that has built some goodwill with some Democrats who are willing to talk to me in a way that doesn't just assume that I'm a reflexive partisan first, because I make clear to them that I rank order my Republican policy commitments below my constitutional duties. But I also want to see Democrats rise up to defend their legislative obligations to the Constitution and stand against an executive branch that would try to write law by fiat.
1: Scripture is clear that one of our duties as citizens of these two spheres or the two kingdoms is that we need to pray for those who govern us. So how can we pray for you as one who governs us?
2: Thank you. We would covet that. Uh, I can think of at least three things immediately. The first is pray for our family like many people in your audience I don't get to always sleep in the house with my kids every night because of the callings of my workday job and so I'm away a lot and I have three little kids and so that's a toll and so we would covet family unity and the growing catechesis of our children when dad's away too much second I pray that I would love those who respond to political disagreement with threats that are completely inappropriate for civic discourse and so we have a lot of folks that do and say things that are kind of crazy, and uh, I want to not just figure out ways to tolerate it and avoid it and uh, advance our own family protection, but to find ways to love those that do some really strange and hostile, bizarre things. Third, I would ask that we would be both winsome and prudent in trying to persuade people. We're not always going to agree about this worldly policy judgments. There is room for principled people to disagree about matters. I hope that I would be prudent in serving the country and the people of my state, but I especially also hope that I could communicate the whys of why I take the positions and the votes I take so that even folks who disagree with the prudential choice I might make would recognize the logic behind it so that hopefully they also can try to reconcile times when i'm on a 40% side or a 10% side of a vote and lose or if i'm on a 70 or 90% side and win that we can again come together as a people that don't treat policy differences at the order of tribal hatred and right now there is obviously so much anxiety in american life and so much fragmentation and so much you know angst about what comes next for a lot of families trying to provide for their kids that when you do disagree with people at the level of policy many want to end all discussions a civic Public requires more
0: and better, and I hope that I would be a good and prudential leader and communicator through these times. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.